Good morning, Crossroads. How are we doing? So great to see you. I want to welcome our Lexington campus. Can we give them a hand in Lexington as well as our online campus? We're thrilled to have you guys. Thanks so much for joining us. We love you guys online as well as in Lexington. We are so thrilled to have you. Uh, a lot of exciting things happening at, at Crossroads. Uh, first of all, take your Bibles out with me and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. What a great time of celebration together. It's so good to be back. Uh, our new normal schedule now. Uh, on Sundays, we, we kind of got rid of the marathon of five services here at Park Avenue. And uh, we're excited to kind of be at a regular schedule again. And obviously still a lot of things going on. Ephesians chapter 4, page 977. If you don't have a Bible, there is one on the seat back in front of you. As you turn there, I just want to share some important news. Uh, You know, as a church, we always like to keep you up to date. Uh, We are accountable as leaders to you. Uh, This is not uh, some machine we just run and do whatever we want. No, this is a family. We are a family. We are a body of Christ. And, And so some of those things, though, we do time to make sure that you hear them after due diligence has been done, that you hear news after we've done some work to say, here's the plan. Uh, well, this situation was something we've been excited about the opportunity. We didn't know where it was going. Uh, by the way, God is at work in many ways in the midst of this season uh, that I can't wait to tell you about, but I can't tell you all of them yet because we want to do our due diligence. We would fail you to come to you and not have a plan for what God may be asking us in this next season, but uh, God has been doing some amazing things. Well, uh, some of those things we can't control. Uh, for example, when the media gets a hold of something and they decide to put it out there and, uh, and then we have to then come and say, hey, we're not ready for this, but we're going to tell you anyway because we want you to know and we are accountable to you of what God has been doing kind of behind the scenes. We go back a few months ago um, in all of the COVID season and then on top of that, some of the racial tension that we've experienced. And Uh, One of the things that really gripped us was it was one thing to say that we believe that black lives do matter. Now, we realize there's an organization with that. We're not talking about the organization. We're talking about the fact that we believe lives matter. And in this case, in the midst of injustice, that black lives do matter. And, of course, in certain circumstances, it's important to say we believe that you matter specifically. And so in the midst of all of that, one of the things that we prayed about was, God, let us not just sit back and think about the racial tensions and feel bad about them, but let us be willing to do something. Like, let, how do we reach out into our community? And one of the things that I love about our church is that I, I call us the great experiment because we are a church that is biblically grounded, right? We are focused on the scripture, on the glory of Jesus Christ and all things uh, as a church. And also, uh, we're a church that's highly creative. We're a church that believes in community. We're a church that also wants to reach out into our community, in, into the needed areas, into the areas of of where God is working into the areas where maybe there needs to be help. And so that was one of the reasons why we launched our city center was because we wanted to be a place that, that not only just stands firm on the word of God unapologetically, but also a place that is willing to reach out into our community. And of course, Pastor Jesse, our city center campus pastor, uh, Monica Christie, our program director at our city center, and a army of people from our church uh, goes every week and makes what happens at the city center Go And it is amazing what God is doing, even in the midst of this season, how we can serve our communities well. And, and there, obviously, as we've been serving, we've been running out of space as we've grown partnerships. I mean, we have just been expanding ministries, especially in a season like this. God has opened many doors, and our team is doing such a fantastic job. And so one of the things that we've been praying about is, God, are there, is there a place or are there opportunities to expand the ministry that you've called us to? 
Uh, and so after this whole thing came through with the racial tensions that we felt, uh, there was an article that came out by our city uh, that said they were no longer going to be able to take care of the old O.C. OC Hill building, uh, which is found in the north end. O.C. Hill, uh, the first African-American city councilman, that building is named after him. It was old school back in the day. Many of you know where that is in the north end. And they, they came out in an article right in the heat of it. The timing, I think, was not very good. The PR uh, position of that was probably not well thought through. But they were being honest that they could no longer take care of the building. And we know why that is. And it's true that uh, in the city, tax revenues are down just in this season. Certainly, there are some things that COVID has affected greatly. And so they just said, we can't upkeep that. And so one of the things that happened was right after that, uh, Pastor Jesse went and said, hey, I'm just going to go see this building. And so he went to see the building. And the next thing you know, he, he called me up and he said, Dave, I I think, I think we need to go look at it together. And so we go see the building together. Uh, it is a 100-year-old building, but it is great. It's got great bones. I mean, it is built to last. Uh, it needs a lot of work to it. And so we walked through that. And so I came back to our team, to our executive team, to our elders, and I said, guys, I really believe uh, God may be opening a door, so let's do some due diligence. And due diligence means let's get some cost analysis, let's get some inspections, let's find out, is this building, is this building viable? Is it actually worth uh, doing ministry in? Like, could we use this in, in an area that we have, we've ministered in, in an area where we've had partnerships in, in, in an area where we've been able to con connect with people? And by the way, we do outreach to the North End. In fact, this summer, we've done multiple outreaches in the North End area, Johns Park specifically. And so we thought this would be just a natural place where maybe ministry could continue and expand. Uh, of course, we're doing due diligence and uh, Someone finds out about this, and they go to the media, and the next thing you know, if you follow the media, it's all over the place, and this mystery organization that's looking at uh, O.C. Hill building. Uh, we were not ready to say to you, we're buying O.C. Hill. We have no clue. We're doing due diligence because we don't want to buy a building that's going to tear down tomorrow. Uh, we don't want to be stuck with that, and so we're just doing due diligence. Um, however, this past week, I felt that we had to say something. They now knew it was us. It was now public, and so I went ahead and made a, made a statement. That article is coming out today, I was told, except it came out online on Thursday. <laughs> no problem, right? This is, this is what we do, and, uh, but I wanted to let you know we are praying about that. Uh, we will keep you informed. We are not jumping. Uh, we, our elders have a meeting coming up in August where we're going to talk about what we found in all these inspections that we've done. Um, and we're not going to go without the community understanding it. Like what we're not doing is running ahead of the North End community. Uh, we've got partnerships. I've got friends. I've got pastor friends that we are talking. We are engaging. Um, we don't just come out and say that though, right? You don't just come out and say, hey, we're talking to everybody. Don't worry. Uh, and so you're, you might see people that will say, hey, Crossers are trying to run ahead. They don't really care about the community. That's not true. Um, we're in the community. We're working with people in the community. We love that community. We have people in our church from that community. And so we're walking before we run. We're doing due diligence. Uh, we're going to love well. And we're going to partner with the partners uh, that we have in that community. And then we're going to add more that God may bring our way. And it may be something collaborative among multiple churches. It may be that we kind of run together with them. It may be, hey, would you guys be willing to do this? We're going to figure that out. But I just want you to hear that because you're going to read that today, if you read the newspaper, um, it will not be on Fox News, Don't Worry, or CNN, but um, it, it will be in the local papers. But pray about that with us. 
You know, I think it's a bit tragic to have a building that means something in a community that has had everything taken away from them, to have something that actually can serve them. And so that's our heart, is whatever that looks like, it doesn't have to be crossroads, whatever that looks like to say, let's serve that community well. And for us, we want people to know the gospel. In the end, we want people to know the gospel because that transforms lives. And so would you pray with us? Uh, we've got, we don't know the plans yet, we're just getting inspections done, but would you pray with us about this? Um, and I've been blown away how God has been opening doors and conversations for what possibly could happen, uh, whether that building is it or not. I believe, actually, that God could be using this moment to really break down some walls, to serve this, this region together as a bigger body of Christ for his kingdom. And I believe God is at work in that way. And so I'm just going to ask you, would you pray as we do the due diligence? And we'll keep you posted. Um, as you read that, we're just preparing the way. We're not there yet, uh, but we will keep you posted. So I want to take a moment to pray. This is a, this is a, a great moment, right? And we have uh, an army of people. We have a team at our city center doing great work. Uh, many of you that have invested greatly to make that happen. And so we're going to keep that before you. But would you just pray with us about this? Would you bow with me? God, I want to thank you. Uh, Lord, there are so many opportunities that you have opened doors for. And O.C. Hill is, is one of those that we're just walking through. God, I believe that we're being obedient as we walk through due diligence. God, we don't have an answer. We don't know what it's going to look like. We don't know if it's even the right option. God, what we do know is that you are using our body in our community. God, that through our city center, through camps that are happening all throughout our community this summer, through, uh, through park partnerships, through different things that are happening throughout our community, God, you are at work through us. And so we can't deny that. God, we would be foolish to sit back and, 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 and not be willing to take steps forward in faith when you, we seem to be working in and through us. And so, God, we're just trying to be obedient. And Lord, whatever that looks like, you are God who is sovereign and provident, so we trust you. And so, Lord, I just pray in the midst of all this, we know that great confusion can rise. Lord, it can seem as if we're trying to run before we walk, and, but God, uh, we just want to serve our community well. We want to love our city well. God, we want our region to be impacted by the great news that you came and died and that you rose again. And so, God, whatever means that is, whatever way that can be, God, help us to see it and help us to walk in it. And so, as we walk down this journey, give us wisdom. Give us wisdom to be able to see your plan and your desire for us as a church to reach our community. God, you have blessed us greatly. And God, I thank you for our church. We have faithful people who are willing to serve, who are willing to go the, the, the deepest need to proclaim the greatest news about the greatest one who ever came. And we thank you for that, Jesus Christ, that you've called us to that. Lord, that's a church, you've called us to that. And so whatever that looks like, Lord, we pray for partnerships, partnerships. We pray for friendships that are, that are growing in the midst of this in an amazing way. Uh, Lord, we pray for those conversations yet to happen, uh, that you would just guide them. God, as we look into your word, we pray that you would challenge us, you would change us, you would equip us, that you would move us deeper into an understanding of what you've done for us so that we, we may respond in, in action, we respond in obedience, uh, not as a list that we have to accomplish, but as a life that is poured out of us through your spirit. So God, speak to us through your word this morning. In your name, Jesus, amen, amen. Hey, thank you for being the church that you are. I'm so proud and privileged to be able to be a, the pastor here and be a part of this family. Um, and I'm glad we're friends, and God is at work. I mean, I'm just blown away. I, I'm going to still yet tell you the stories later, not yet, as we walk through other things that God is doing. Um, blown away about how God is at work. So thank you for your faithfulness that makes our church so great. And so pray about those opportunities. Hey, let's dive into Ephesians chapter 4. We're in a series called Weird. And what we're talking about is, what is our identity in Christ in the midst of a new normal? 
This is a weird season. And what does it look like to, to attach our lives to the anchor of Christ? What has Christ made us to be so that we can reflect him in these odd, weird seasons? And we remember in the beginning of the series, we said that Paul is sitting in prison. He is sitting in prison, and he's writing this letter to one of his, his protege churches. It's a church that he planted, that he had great relationships with. In fact, he spent the most time in Ephesus than most anywhere else, and he cared about these people more than any. And so he's writing them, and he's saying, I want to encourage you. Yes, I'm sitting in prison, but I'm a prisoner of Christ, not a prisoner of Caesar. And here they are, and they're wondering, what will the future look like? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to us as a church? Is it, are we going to be persecuted? Are we going to be thrown in the prison? And some were even walking away. And so Paul writes them and says, no, no, no. I want to remind you of who you are in Christ. From chapter 1, he says, you are chosen by the Father. You are redeemed by the Son. You are secured by the Spirit. In chapter 2, he says, you were dead in trespasses and sin, but God made you alive because he's rich in love and abounding in mercy. He then comes to chapter 3 and says, listen, God wants to do more, exceedingly abundantly more, above all that you can ask or think. He's revealed this mystery of Jew and Gentile belonging together in the church, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, that God is at work through you. Don't miss it. It might seem like I'm sitting in prison and ministry ends, but no, no the ministry of the gospel goes forward through the church. And then we came to chapter 4. And remember, he began chapter 4 by saying, walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk worthy of the calling that you have received. Now, if we understand that calling, as a result, what we're going to see is that we're going to balance the scales with obedience. We're going to balance the scales. All through Ephesians, what we're finding is this, that the message of the gospel is not merely turning our lives around. Right, you ever heard that expression, uh, not to use the Bible to do that, but right, if this is our lives and we're just going to turn our lives around, the problem is it's the same life. Or how about this, you ever heard that expression, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. Well, you still got a leaf. What, what, what Paul is getting at is not just that we want to turn our lives around, not just that we're turning over a new leaf, it's about becoming who we are in Christ. It's not about becoming what we're not, it's about becoming who we are. That's what Paul is writing. He's not trying to say, you're not this, you're not this, you're not this, you're not that. He's trying to say, this is who you are. Become who you are in Christ. Christ has already done this for you, Christian. Christ has already done this for you, church. Therefore, live it out. He's already done it. It's not about becoming what you're not. It's about becoming who you are in Christ if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And so here in Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to begin to see where the rubber meets the road. He's going to begin to give us some commands and some instructions as to how to live this out. Now as we dive in, what we're going to be really seeing is a picture of Christ. A picture of Christ. Right? Pictures are pretty special things, aren't they? Because pictures give us an imprint of a memory. And I don't know about you, have there not been times where you've taken a picture and then later on you wondered, why was I wearing that when that picture was taken? Or what was I thinking when that picture was taken? You ever have one of those pictures you look back on and go, man, what was I thinking in that picture? What kind of hairstyle is that? What kind of outfit is that? Or... I mean, let me show you one. I, when I see it, I think, what was I thinking? Take a look at this picture.
Now, that, this is my, back in my rapping days. What up? What up? Like, what was I thinking on this picture? And so now, some of our staff had this picture, and it becomes blackmail. Like, I am blackmailed by the staff. Like, they'll, they'll every once in a while say, we're going to use this picture if you're not careful. Right? I, I had this picture. I'm like, what, what was I thinking when I put that outfit on? What was I thinking when that picture was taken? You ever have that moment where you're like, what was I thinking when that picture was taken? What we're going to see here is that Paul is going to be, begin to lay out a picture of what it looks like to live out Christ. And what it's going to cause us to do is feel a little bit uncomfortable. Because the question that's going to be asked of us is, how are we reflecting that picture? What Paul is trying to tell us is, that picture is, is, is yours in Christ. It's what you're supposed to reflect if you're following Jesus Christ. He's not trying to lay a burden upon us. He's not trying to say, listen, you don't have this picture. He's trying to inspire us to live out the way of Christ. And so as we dive in, he's going to call us to this. Take a look with me, Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to begin in verse 17. It says, now this I say... And I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves over to sensuality, greedy to practice, and every kind of impurity. So Paul here begins this section and he says, hey, I want to share with you first what I see in the way of the world. Number one, we see the way of the world. I want to show you first that you shouldn't walk the way the world walks. By the way, notice the word Gentile there. The word Gentile is not just an ethnicity, it is also morality. Uh, in the Jewish mind, a Gentile was a represent, representation of the rest of the world. Because if you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. And so literally what Paul is saying is don't walk the way the rest of the world walks. Don't way the, walk the way the world walks. Not an ethnic Jew or an ethnic Gentile, but a moral, in a moral sense. Don't walk the way the world walks. So he describes what, is, what way does the world walk. If we're not supposed to walk that way, what do they walk like? Verse 18, or verse 17, they walk in the futility of their minds. What, what, what does that mean? They walk aimlessly. They walk aimlessly. We're going to see this, these kind of three observations, right? Aimless. They walk aimlessly. They are futile in their thinking. Literally, they have a malfunction in the way that they think. Those without Christ walk with a malfunction of the mind. They walk in emptiness. That's the word futility. It is literally they are empty. They are walking around and they do not know which direction. In fact, notice what he goes on to say. Verse 18, they are darkened in their understanding. They're walking and their minds are just empty and they don't know why they're going the direction they're going. They are aimless. They are without target. They are without destination. They are aimlessly wandering without purpose. Busy, but not going anywhere. Secondly, he says not only aimless, but they are sightless. Verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding. They're alienated from the life of God because of ignorance that is in them because of the hardness of heart. He says the world walks sightless. I mean, it's darkened. They're walking without not only purpose and direction, but they're walking and you can't see anyway. They, they can't see where they're going. They are blindfolded in a world of illusion. They are blindfolded in a world of, of inauthenticity. They're blinded in a world of lies. 
and they don't know what the truth is. And as you see culture move, right, we see this rise, this idea of people really don't know what to believe. They're blind to that. And notice what he says next. Not only are they aimless and sightless, but they're shameless. They're shameless. Take a look at verse 19. They have been callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. He says they are shameless. In fact, I want to share with you this Greek word because this is a pretty interesting Greek word. It's not used very often in the New Testament. It's the Greek word um, apalgeo or apalgeo. And it literally means to cease feeling pain. Callous has the idea, and you never get those calluses on your hands or your feet or wherever you might get them, elbows, wherever you might get them. And eventually they get so hardened that you could put a nail through them and you wouldn't feel it. You could put a little pin through them and you won't feel it. They get so hardened that you don't even feel it. It's, it's dead skin that's calloused over. That's the word here. Literally, that the world has moved past the pain of the experience to where now that experience can happen without pain, that there is, there is sensuality and there are choices and there's no shame in it. There's, they're shameless about it. What once brought shame now is just normative. It's just normal. This is what Paul's describing as they've moved past the pain. The, the pain has ceased. In fact, I want you to notice that Paul connects it to sensuality. He says, if you know where you see this greatest is in the area of, of, of intimacy, of sexuality, right? So we live in a culture where we're redefining marriage, we're redefining sexuality, we're redefining gender. We have an ongoing sexual revolution. I mean, I don't know if you know this or not, but one out of every nine marriage has affairs. Uh, there are now alibi services that if you want to have an affair, you can have a cover story in a, uh, with a phone call and a number that you can call to be able to, to, to have an affair easier. This is the world that we live in. We are calloused and shameless about the way we live. So Paul says, this is the way of the world. Now what Paul's not doing is casting them aside and saying, forget them. What he's saying is, wait a minute, as you try to walk worthy of the calling of which Christ has called you, that's not your story. That's not who you are anymore. Don't walk the way the rest of the world walks. Now he comes back. Take a look at what he says. He contrasts this. Verse 20. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former man of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Paul says, don't walk the way the rest of the world walks, but walk a different way, the way of Christ. This is number two, literally the way of a Christian. Here is the way of the world. Here is the way of a follower of Jesus Christ. Here is the way of a Christian. Here is the way of the church. Notice how he describes it, verse 20. But, and I label this another bigger but of the Bible, but, that was meant to be funny. Thank you, Lexington, for laughing at that for me, those of you online. But, Here's the contrast, but is one of the greatest words in the Bible. Why? Because before and after we can see what it's all about, right? He says, don't walk the way of the world, don't walk the way the Gentiles walk. They're futile, they're aimless, they're sightless, they're shameless. But you have not so learned Christ. You have not learned this in Christ. This is not your way. Your way is different. The way God has called us is different. By the way, I love the way he words this. Notice verse 20. 
But that is not the way you learn Christ. Do you notice that Christ is the object of that sentence? He is the subject of our learning. I love this because you don't just say, like we don't go around saying, but you have not learned Dave. You have not learned Ernesto. Right? You, we don't say that. We don't make a person the, the object of our conversation. We don't say it like that. What Paul is doing is he's using a bit of artistic form to say the subject and the object is Jesus, that that Christ is what we've learned. This is not so we've learned in Christ. This is unusual, and it's an awe-inspiring phrase. Why? Because he's saying, listen, it's not just the teachings of Christ that we need to learn. It's that we've learned Christ himself. This is so important. I love theology. I love talking about theology. But it's not just doctrinal truths that I need to learn. In my life, I need to learn Jesus. Right? This is the point. He's saying it's not just some truth. And by the way, we need to learn those truths. We have doctrinal statements. We write doctrinal papers about the things of theology and doctrine. We need those. But what Paul is saying, it's not just merely head knowledge about some doctrinal information. It is that Jesus is the subject and the object of my learning. I want to learn Jesus. I want to reflect Jesus. I want to live Jesus. I, I, I want to ooze Jesus. That sounds weird. I don't know what it means. It sounds weird, but right, we, Jesus is what this is about. Notice he goes on, 21, assuming that you've heard about him and you were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Notice he keeps him, him, him. He's it. He's what we're supposed to belong to. He's who we're supposed to reflect. He is our ongoing instruction. He is what this book is all about. Jesus. Jesus Christ. And so he says, you haven't learned this in him. That's not who you are. There's another way that, that Christ has shown you, another way that Christ has demonstrated for you. And then he begins to give what in the Greek are three infinitives, which are kind of odd. Uh, many don't know how to translate that, but literally they seem like action words, but he's actually wording them to say, these are already true, but now live in them. These are already true things. So notice what he says. He gives three of them. He says, put off your old self. Put off your old self. By the way, this word put off was the same word that was used when Saul, who is now Paul, was stoning Stephen. Remember what it said in the text in, 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 Acts, in the book of Acts chapter 6? It says that they came and they laid their clothing at the feet of Saul. Saul was at, 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 the, uh, at the stoning of Stephen, and they came and laid their garments. Those who stoned Stephen laid their garments at the feet of Saul. What is the impact? Is that Saul here is writing this, and I wonder if he had this in his mind, that this same word was used in that description. Luke uses it in the book of Acts. Literally that we are to lay off, we are to, to take off, put off this way. Put off the old self. Take it off. By the way, the wording here is literally it's already off, but take it off. Take it off. Take off the old way. It calls for a change of identities. It calls for a change of action. It calls for definitive action. It calls us to do something. Put off your former self, which belongs to a manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires. He says, put it off. Now, verse 23. He says, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. He says, put off your former self, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The mind is the battleground of faith. The mind is what navigates our life. It's how we think stirs how we live. 
And so he says we need to have our minds renewed. We don't think the way the world does in futility. We don't think in emptiness. We don't think in aimlessness. No, we think in fullness. We have a picture. It's true right in life. This is true. Our minds are important. You ever want to lose weight? Where does it start? I don't know about you, but it doesn't just happen when I'm sitting there watching a game. And there are times during the game I might sweat. The team's on the edge, and I kind of wish I was the one at the plate, or I was the one quarterbacking in that moment, right? You ever feel that way? What happens? If you want, you want to lose weight, it starts in the mind, right? I got I to I gotta convince myself that I need to go to the treadmill, or I need to go to the elliptical. Or I need to go to the weight bench. I gotta, I gotta convince myself. I gotta think about it. I gotta convince myself that this is the right thing. Right? That's the word here. Right? I can, I can say, hey, I want to diet. I gotta convince myself not to eat ice cream. That's a losing battle. But I gotta start in the mind, right? It starts in the mind. That's what Paul's saying is if I'm gonna put off my former self, I gotta make sure my mind and the word here literally, I'm being renewed. By the way, you've ever heard this expression, right? Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a lifestyle. Sow a lifestyle, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. It all begins with a thought. Our thoughts have a way of directing our lives. So what he's saying here is the mind is where new desires are made. So he says, put off. By being renewed in your mind. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. I, when I go outside and do some work in the yard, and whether it's helping with the garden that Allison uh, has planted and loves to, to take care of, or it's going out and doing some yard work, just picking up things, mulching, um, I have, like, my garden pants. And these are the ones that I don't care if they get dirty, they're ripped up anyway. And, and everybody has probably multiple pairs, right? You might have multiple pairs of garden pants, and these are the ones I wear. Here's what happens every time. Right? I come in to the, through the garage, and there's, we have a laundry room right there. And I walk in after working the yard. I'm all muddied, especially after mulching. Like, and, and, and by the way, this is, I don't know if this is true of you. I get more dirt on me than I probably get on the ground. I mean, Allison sometimes is like, Dave, did you roll in it out there? Like, what were you doing? But I just don't know why it gets all over me. And so I walk into the laundry room, and, and my instinct is I'm coming inside maybe after a hot day, and my thought is immediately to go to the kitchen and get a drink. And so I go through the laundry room, and I walk in the kitchen, and I get these big brown eyes looking at me like, why are you walking in the kitchen with those pants on? Right? What she wants me to do is take those dirty pants off before I come to the kitchen to get a drink. Those pants are not in the house things. Put them in the laundry room. Put them in the basket. Like, don't, don't, don't wear them in the house. I sometimes forget that, right? So I got to think about this, right? My mind is being renewed. I got to remember to take off the things that I were. I got to remember to take off the things that reflect the world that I used to be a part of. I got I to gotta think this way. I got to have this redeem, right? This thought process redeeming my mind. I got to continue to think about this so that I can take off my former manner of life. I can set it aside. I'm not wearing it past the laundry room. That's what he says here. Take off the former self by being renewed in your mind. And notice verse 24. And now put on the new self, created after the likeness of God. I love this. Remember in the beginning we were created in the image of God. Sin broke the image of God. But what happens? In Christ, he restores the image of God. I love this. He, he says, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holy, holiness. He says, now, put on what is right. Put on what is good. 
And then he begins to, begins to give us this picture of our new spiritual identity. He begins to give us corresponding responsibilities as to what it looks like to put on the new self. We have the new self in Christ. We are made new. We are a new creation. How does it look? What is the outfit supposed to look like? What is this picture that we're painting of Christ? Take a look at what he says in verses 25 through 32. He describes this for us. It says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So he told us, Put off the old former self, put on the new self, and now he calls us, verse 25, to put away things. To put away things. By the way, notice verse 25, he says, therefore, having put away falsehood. Literally here in the Greek, it, it says, put away the lie. Put away the lie. Literally, it is singular. What is he saying? If you know Christ, you have taken off your former self. If you know Christ, you have put on righteousness and holiness. Then put away the things that would bring you back to that former self. Put, put them away. And then he begins to describe how we must put the lie away. Uh, by the way, it's really hard to translate that word, the lie. But I, I actually wrote my dissertation on this verse, uh, this section. And... I, it was really interesting to find this is singular, and literally he's like saying, put away the lie. Like if you're not living this way, you're lying. Like you're lying about who you are in Christ. So put away the lie. Now he gives us some ways to do that. So I want to I look at these ways. And what he's going to do is give us a negative, give us a positive action, so that he, we're not just saying don't sin, we're, it's also saying yes to God. And then he gives us a theological reason as to why we should do it. I want to look at these rather quickly. First of all, put away lying and put on truth. Notice what he says next. Therefore, having put away the lie, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Notice the theological reason. Why do I not want to lie? Why do I want to speak truth? Why? Because we're, we're members together of the body. We belong together. He says, put away the lie and speak truth to one another. You know what's interesting? 90% of, of Americans admit that they lie regularly. 90% of Americans say, I lie regularly. 36% of those said they know it's hurtful to others. It's a chapter in a book called American Liars. And it says that we are a, a culture of lie. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying, no, no, instead, put away lying, and instead speak truth to one another. Give each other the truth. Yes, we do that gently. Yes, we do that carefully. We speak the truth even if it makes me look bad. We don't, we don't give partial truths. We are people who are true. In Christ, we are true to who we are, but we're also true in how we, how we share. He says, do this because we're members with one another. Put away lying and put on truth. Speak truth. Reflect truth. Live truth. Can I tell you, I have found there is much more freedom in truth than there is in lying. Because when you lie, what do you have to do? 
You got a lie to cover the lie to cover the lie to cover the lie, and that next thing you know, you have a you have a pit of lies. And when you speak the truth, there's freedom in that. There is freedom in truth. I don't have to hide anything. This is who I am. This is what God has done. And oh, in this moment I messed up. In this moment I got it right. In this moment I got it wrong, right? We just speak the truth. Even if I don't have it all together, I speak the truth. There's freedom in that. Notice what he says next. Not only speak the truth, but he says, put away anger and put on righteousness. Notice verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give an opportunity. Here's a theological reason. Don't give an opportunity to the devil. You know what's interesting? The Bible teaches that anger and love actually go hand in hand. That anger is a force, a destructive energy that is released in defense of something you love. It is. Anger is a good thing. It is connected to love, right? If you have a friend dying of cancer, do you feel angry? Why? Because you love them. If you have kids that are sinning and rebelling against you and they're, they're, you're watching them walk a path that's destroying their soul, what happens? You're angry about it. It messes with you. Why? Because you love them. Uh, when you see the, the glory of God diminished by the world, what happens? There's a bit of anger. Jesus, by the way, showed this. He loved his people so much that he got angry in the temple. And it says he wiped away those who were cheating people. Anger is connected to love. But here, catch this. Don't miss this. Sinful anger comes from loving the wrong things or loving the right things out of proportion. See, if our love is messed up, what happens? Our anger will be messed up. So a lot of times, the reason I get angry is because I love myself. The reason I get angry is because my love is misproportioned. My love is not in the right place. In fact, anger is connected to love. And when I understand what I love, anger reveals it. But, but when I understand what I love correctly, now all of a sudden, anger can be a right reaction. Notice what Paul says. Be angry and do not sin. This is why he says do not sin. You might be angry, but make sure you don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. He says don't be like an Eskimo that only has six months of sunshine and six months of darkness. He says, take care of it immediately. In other words, what Paul is saying here is this. When you have anger, loving anger is redemptive. It's not vindictive. Loving anger is short-lived. Loving anger is controlled. What is he saying? Get rid of it. Proverbs 16, 32. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. Proverbs 29, 11, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds back. He's saying deal with the anger as quickly as possible. Don't let it have its place so Satan has a foothold in your life. He says, get rid of it. By the way, um, I remember when Alice and I first got married, in my house growing up, we learned this verse, and my mom had a rule that if there was an issue and you're angry about it, you will not go to bed until it's dealt with. I got married to Allison, who was taught this verse means deal with it quickly, but if it's late at night and everybody's tired, it's not the time to deal with it, so just sleep. And I remember our, one of our first arguments was an argument about how we argue true. It was one of our deepest arguments in the beginning of our marriage was, wait, wait, no, we, I was like, we got to deal with this now. Like, I, I cannot go to sleep if we don't deal with this. We're going to talk all night if we have to. And I was like, nope, we're both tired. It's not the time we're going to sleep. And I'm like, oh, I can't do that. Like, I am taught that we have, do not let the sun go down in your wrath. And she's like, Dave, when we're exhausted, the sun will never go down. We, we took her away, by the way. Um, <laughs> I've learned through the years. She's wise. She knows what she's doing. I, right? Now I've learned. No, she's right. 
The idea is to make sure we're taking care of The idea is not to be vindictive. It's to be redemptive. It's to be short-lived. It's to be controlled. It's to be, it's to be controlled for God's glory. What do I love? That's the question I should ask when I'm angry. What am I loving? What am I loving? Why am I feeling this anger? If I'm loving well, then that anger might be right. When I'm loving poorly, that anger might be wrong. Notice he goes on here. He says, not only put away anger and put on righteousness, but put away stealing and put on honesty. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. He says, put away stealing, do honest work, do good work. Why? So you can share with other people. He then goes on and says, put away corrupt speech and put on kind words. Notice verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only which is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace. Here's the theological reason, that it may give grace to those who hear. He says, don't let corrupt talk come out of your mouth. By the way, in the, uh, the word corrupt there is literally the word rotten. It's a rotting fruit, rot, spoiled fish, decayed trees, stones that are crumbling. He says, don't let your speech be rotten. Our lives are an accent of Jesus. You know how you tell where people are from based upon their accent? Someone goes, how y'all doing? We know they're from the south. When someone says, I got to go out and get the car, I think of, the car, the, the Boston accent, right? You know they're from Boston, right? There, there's an accent. New Yorkers have a New York accent. There's an accent that people have. We, as we talk, are the accent of Jesus. People know who we're about or where we're from, kingdom-wise, when we reflect it in our speech. And so he says, listen, reflect what is good and can build up what gives grace to those who hear it. Then he says this, Put away bitterness and put on forgiveness. Go down to verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Put away bitterness. Bitterness does far more damage to your heart than it does to whomever you're mad at. Bitterness will hold you captive. It is the worm of the soul that will stare you down. It, it, will, it will nurse in you and it will grow in you. And eventually what happens? Wrath happens. Anger happens. Clamor, which literally means a, a, a loud crash slander begins to happen. The next thing you know, there is malice, evil that just corrupts. He says, put it away. And instead, notice verse 32, instead be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. He, he says, instead of having bitterness just boil over, forgive. Remember that forgiveness that Christ has given to you? You didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. Forgive. Now, forgiveness is not accepting what people have done. Forgiveness is the exact opposite. When we have to forgive somebody, we're actually admitting they've done us wrong. It's not, it's not saying, I don't think it's wrong anymore. It's not saying they don't deserve a, a, a consequence. But what is he saying? He's saying, instead of letting bitterness rule in your heart, forgive. Release yourself of that debt. In fact, I dare say, leave them in the hands of God. If I wouldn't want to, someone to be the judge, it's not me. Because there's only so much I can do. I'd rather leave them in the hands of God where they will answer for what they've done. I release myself of that debt. I, I forgive them. And then if you go back just a few verses there, notice what he says in verse 30. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. I, I think this is a summary statement of this text. And that's this, put away grieving the Holy Spirit and put on obedience. The word grieving literally means emotional distress. It literally has the idea of irritation or offense. He says, do not offend the Holy Spirit. Now, whenever I read this, I wonder, okay, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to not offend the Holy Spirit? 
literally the idea of, I want to be obedient. I want to live in who I am in Christ. I want to be what God has called me to be in Christ. I don't want to offend the Holy Spirit. I want to to press into what he's making of me. Uh, It actually proves a relational aspect of God that God actually feels and senses. Now, I know it's God, and so I I want to be careful that we use these words cautiously, but God is a... God is affected. Now, God is sovereign. He's not affected by our decisions in the way that we are. But, but God is moved by our obedience. That's what it means, literally. The Holy Spirit is distressed or irritated when we don't follow him. So what does he say? He says, do not, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. But actually press in because you're sealed by him for the day of redemption. He is the one that covers you in the midst of this struggle to live this out. And then we come to chapter 5. And I believe this is a summary of the whole passage. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Be imitators of God. Let me ask you this. Are you an imitator of God? See, all that he says, put off the old man, be renewed in your thinking, Put on who you are in Christ. Take off the things that are holding on, that are holding you back. Now reflect Christ in action. Make sure we talk well, that we're not angry and let it go. Let let it just run run, run us rampant. Let not bitterness have its way. Make, Make sure that we're speaking truth to one another. Are you a reflection? Are you imitating the Christ that we've learned? Are we imitating him in our actions, in our pursuits, Are we imitating him? That's the drive of this passage. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. Now listen, I don't don't know about you, but I remember when I played sports, I wanted to imitate certain athletes. Whether it's like back in the day, Michael Jordan, when you take a shot, you try to stick your tongue out. Or or, or whether it was uh, Tim Howard, who was a Heisman Trophy candidate, who did that famous thing, right? We imitate people. Our kids imitate us. Imitation isn't always in perfection, right? When we imitate, there's always, there's always a little bit that we miss. The point of this passage is not to lay a burden upon us. It's to call us into who we are in Christ. And he says, imitate God. Follow him. Do the way of Jesus. You have learned this in Christ. And as you walk through that checklist, what are you missing? What are the things that are lacking? Would you stand with me as we pray? Then we're going to sing. Paul's point is we're all imitating somebody. The way of the world, the way of Christ. We're all imitating somebody. What are we imitating? What are we demonstrating? What are we, what are we giving a glimpse into? Is it Christ or is it self? Is it Christ or is it the way of the world? Is this a, I'm, I'm going to speak differently, I'm going to forgive, I, I'm going to be a little more patient, I'm going to put anger away, is it, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to let bitterness overflow me. What is it that you need to say, I need to reflect better in? If you're here and you don't know Christ, you're at Lexington and you're online, you don't know Christ, could the day be the day of your salvation? Could the day be the day that you take that step of faith where God awakens your heart, opens your eyes, and you say, God, I want to respond, transferring my trust from myself to you alone, Jesus. The follower of Christ, are you, are you needing to put off the old man? Put off the old person, the old nature? Put on what is new in Christ, righteousness and holiness, so we can reflect him to a world that desperately needs to see authenticity, that desperately needs to see the goodness of God. Uh, God, I want to thank you for your word. 
Lord, we are a people that desperately need this reminder. God, in a world that's so easy to not reflect you, God, you call us to reflect you all the more. In a world where there's confusion and chaos, in a world that's weird, God, you're calling us to be a reflection, a picture. Not always a perfect picture, not always a picture that gives an exact representation, but you have called us to be a picture. A picture of your goodness, a picture of your righteousness, a picture of your holiness, a reflection of the God that we have had rescue us. Christ, you have, who we've learned, we've seen, we've been taught. A Christ that is the subject and object of our lives. And so God, in a world that's desperate, I pray that we would all the more reflect you in our speech, in our actions, in our anger, in our love, and how we interact, that we give grace to the hearers, that we let no corrupt word proceed out of our mouth, that we do not, that we do not insult the Holy Spirit, but we follow. We follow. We forgive. We imitate so that you are seen all the more. All for your name, Jesus Christ, our Savior, our King, the one who's called us, who empowers us, who reminds us, who will lead us to the day of redemption. It's in your name, Jesus. Amen.